Hello, welcome to the Scotch and Smokes podcast. This is episode number three. I'm Brian. I'm Seth. And I'm Jesse. You can find us on Facebook if you look up Scotch and Smokes podcast. We're also on the web at madcast.net. And you can find us on iTunes as well. We got a little bit of feedback from one of our previous episodes. We got a comment from Aaron, who is a podcast friend of mine that uh, lives in L.A., we were speculating about January Jones and the amount of uh, makeup and whatnot they were using for her fat suit. Mm-hmm. He wanted to let us know that he says the pregnancy was not the reason why they wrote that and that all that weight is fake mm-hmm. and that they did not need to ride around January's shape. I've read that somewhere else and there has been speculation that perhaps Matthew Weiner thought she was going to gain weight. And so he had that storyline in mind. And then when she didn't gain any weight in her pregnancy... He's like, dang it, we're going to do this anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So in the event that she does need to lose it really quickly, a la Leah Dama in Battlestar Galactica, after he dropped the fat suit, that'll be easy for her to do. So Very nice. By the way, I... Every time I see a fat suit now, I cannot help but think Leodama in the fat suit. I don't know if you're the same way, Jesse, but for those of us that watch Battlestar Galactica, that's uh, kind of a... Touchstone. A touchstone, exactly. Yes. Significance (laughs) indeed. For this episode, we're going to talk about the episode Mystery Date, which is the third episode of Season 5 for Mad Men. Uh, Before we jump in, do you guys have any um, smaller topics you wanted to get out of the way or... Just my sister actually owned Mystery Date, and when she was absolutely bored, my little sister forced me to play it with her, and I will not talk about the scars that left on my emotional life. <laughs> okay. Is that sharing too much, Seth and Brian? Um, no. I think it explains a lot, actually. <laughs> Very nice. Um, the only thing I would like to say about this episode is there wasn't enough Roger and there wasn't enough Megan, but uh, there was more Megan than Roger. And there was no Lane at all. I mean, God, Lane was not yeah. not present at all. That's true. One little point I wanted to make, it's not a thematic point or, at all, it's a historical point. In this episode, when Sally and Grandma Pauline are sitting there in, in the ghost house there, in the, in the haunted house, which was brought up by me a couple of weeks ago, but now even Don's saying it and Pauline is saying it. And of course, yes. Pauline with a knife in her hand augments <laughs> the fact that it's a ghost house. But... Um, <laughs> Did you notice that Pauline shut off her television with a remote control? Oh, yes. That was... Was that... Very interesting. Was that kind of early for remote controls? I mean, I'm trying to do a little research on remote controls, and I know people were working on them at the turn of the century in the 1900s. It just seemed to me to be awfully early. So that was, what, 1966, July 66, We're talking about to have a remote control. I, I mean, I don't recall remote controls that early, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's one of our listeners. I mean, obviously, they're not going to make a mistake like that yeah, unless they yeah, have some research not. to back it up. They try to get the time period I know. correct. I know Matt Weiner is anal about these things. Yeah, so it has to be. I mean, in my own experience, I remember when I was a kid and in the latter part of the 70s, I went to a neighbor's house and the neighbor had a remote, but it was a wired remote. It was like a cable that connected mm-hmm. to, the to the TV. No VCR yeah. yet, but it was connected to the TV and there was no infrared. There was no beam that went out. It was a physical cable. Even then, I was at the time like, whoa, you can turn it on. You can turn it off from like sitting on the couch. So that was like late 70s. And I seem like I remember early remote controls... And we never had one. We did not get a color TV till in the 70s. 
it was a lot of sound. It made a ping, and that did a lot yeah. of the remote controlling. But it is interesting, and I was surprised about it. I was like, well, you can tell they have money. Yeah, they would have that far cutting edge of the technology. So. Yes, that's true. Very well, nice. they have so much money. Why don't they put some more lights on in that house? It is well, so You know creepy. what? And, <laughs> and I tell you what, that has become a theme because, yes, yeah. you did mention it, and now they are talking about yep. Lurch and the Adams house. Right. And, and even, right. even even Grandma is saying, especially yep. in this house, you know. Right. Yeah, don't sneak up behind me. <laughs> don't is. sneak up behind a, an old person or a person of my age, especially in this house. But then Grandma Pauline pulls out a, a huge knife. I mean, I thought, you know, gosh. <laughs> you know, and That's I, a little bit scary. What was interesting, and this has been discussed in a couple of columns about the show, but, you know, the murders is getting yeah. more press than the riots. Yep. Historically, the riots are a bigger deal with us. But at the time, that was, I suppose, and I don't know about you two, but that was a little creepy when she brought in the photos. Yes. that were. T- I was like, really? The voyeurism? Well, there's a certain amount of voyeurism. I ascribed Peggy's voyeurism more to sort of an artistic impulse. In other words, look what a photographer did with this story and being in the position she's in, in a creative position that has a lot to do with art and journalism and and photographic uh, journalism or photojournalism. I thought she was looking at them in that way. At least I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt there. But yeah, it was a lot of voyeurism. And it was interesting in that whole group that Greenberg was the most appalled. He wouldn't look at the pictures. He was outraged. I thought it was also creepy. I mean, the whole episode was creepy. But I thought it was also creepy that Peggy's graphic artist, I think his name is Anthony, has a... um, pantyhose over his face that which, was so disturbing to me yeah, yeah it just it was like dude what are you doing yeah especially <laughs> since we're talking about the spec murders and and rapes uh that those were the bodies that they're talking about and spec was a particularly creepy individual in and out of jail his whole life and and those murders of course rebound in that episode all the time because the one nursing student who survived the murders eight were killed the ninth person who didn't live in that dormitory house or that boarding house but was spending the night survived only because she was underneath the bed and the murderer, Speck, didn't see her or didn't remember that she was there. He might have lost count. And, of course, we saw Sally under the bed, little Sally who can't sleep until Pauline gives her second all. And, <laughs> and then, of course, Don, in his dream, yes. uh, kills Andrea and stuffs her under the bed. So under the bed is a recurring motif here in this episode. Yeah, we've pretty much packed everything into this opening segment of ours. Uh, Well, as we normally do. Yes, we do. I mean, I will say, for me, the one thing I felt was a bit contrived about the episode was that opening scene with the photographer friend just happening to come in, happening to have the photos of this Mm. very big event from another city. And I understand it as a sort of inciting incident for the episode to get everyone on the same page in terms of what the overall topic and force of the, the narrative was going to be. So I accepted in that manner, but I did think it was a little bit odd that, you know, this person just happened to come along. And But it served its purpose. It got everyone on the same page. Before we get to more specifics, and there is a lot to discuss in this episode sure. on specifics, what I find amazing and it's so admirable, the theme of history has been big in this show from the beginning. 
mm-hmm. you know, the Nixon-Kennedy election, mm-hmm. Bay of Pigs, the Kennedy assassination. Cuban and, Missile Crisis. Yes, and, and so you're going, okay, we're running out of big themes, right? But no, he's finding, and here is something that was a historical event. I mean, to a smaller degree, the people throwing the water balloons and the Mm -hmm. protesting. But here is something that is in a different city, and it has given us a theme that gives you the sense and time of the episode. I thought it was just a nice use of history. Yeah, and it's history, but it's also the raising of consciousness of crime of racism that was occurring at those times. And I thought it was a nice little segue when Peggy takes Don's secretary, Dawn, home to her apartment. And of course, the reason she has to do that is because the secretary is worried about going home because of riots, etc., etc. She doesn't want to go near Bedford-Stuyvesant, which was a terrible, and I think still is a terrible part of New York. So she, Peggy puts her in a cab and takes her to her apartment And we're congratulating Peggy the liberal, but then at the very end of that little segment when they're both in the apartment and Peggy has told Dawn that she has a lot of cash and she's left her pocketbook on the table next to where Dawn is sleeping on the couch and Peggy is really kind of worried that, you know, Dawn's going to make off with the cash. So she's not quite as liberal as we all thought or even that she thought. I totally agree with you, Seth. There's so much said in her looking at the purse, looking at Dawn. Dawn looks at her. I know what you're thinking. You know I know what you're thinking. But you know what? I have to say, for all my knocks on Peggy there, this was a great episode for her. I mean, God, she played Roger like a violin in getting that money from him to do the work on Mohawk. And that was just one part of it. The thing that really was amazed me was Peggy in her office on a Friday afternoon with her legs very seductively, I might add, up on the desk, drinking. Would she have done that in the first season? I mean, there's absolutely no way. You can see how her character has changed. There was an online extra with some of the actors talking about this show, and Elizabeth Moss, Peggy, said that she actually had a great time with that scene with Roger, and that she actually played it as Roger. So she she was playing Roger, Peggy being Roger, basically. And you can kind of see that, because she was like, you know, that one line where she says, dazzle me, or with her feet on the desk. And I can totally see that that's how she channeled him into the character at that moment. And of course, you know, we should mention that Roger, this is what, the second time in this early bit of the season that he has pulled out money from his own pocket to, I don't know, you want to say bribe an employee to do something that he wants done, but it's a bad pattern. I have a couple questions about that. First off, I thought it was amazing that when he walked in, she didn't immediately take the foot off the desk and yep. um, a little tipsy, right? Yeah, and secondly, she was, yeah. What a pain in the ass, because there are no ATMs. <laughs> so, you know, Roger got to go to the <laughs> bank, stand in line to cash check to get cash. And it's Friday afternoon. The practical part of me is like, okay, you could have 380 but I need to keep a 20 just so I have some cash in my pocket. Right. I love her line, what you got? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the $10 is for the work. The rest right. is for the lie. Yeah, right. No, and I say thing. more Peggy and Roger anytime we can get it. 
Yeah. And I think, too, this further shows that Roger's just become further emasculated in, in his own company. Mm. He's like, well, I could fire you. And then she's like, well, pfft, you're not gonna. So he, all his power is just wilting away. It's just going. And speaking of changing power relationships, I would say that even though Megan didn't have a lot of screen time in this episode, what she said to Don in the elevator and those various conversations she had with him about Andrea showed to me that she could match Don's wit. Mm-hmm. She could also do something that Betty couldn't do, and that is she could talk to Don on a different level. I mean, she knows Don as an employee. She knows his games. She Heck, she slept with him when she was a secretary there. Betty didn't know any of that. Betty thought, for the most part, that Don was a faithful husband, a provider, and a career man. And he is all those things, but I mean, he was not a faithful husband. And Betty didn't know that until, I don't know, two or three seasons in. She had some suspicions, I think, in season two confirm them in three but for the most part she you know these were suspicions they weren't facts and and megan knows for a fact that don has been a philanderer and so that helps her in in her relationship with him jumping off of the mention of betty and how peggy had channeled roger i felt that sally would not be surprised if the director had directed the sally actress to channel betty in an opening scene where she's calling don the way she was speaking and like the way she was demanding certain things and just being short and curt and just really, I, I thought it was a mini Betty, the way she was talking. She's like, I want to go. I really want you to do this. Uh, uh, you know, it, it had that real Betty-esque tone to her. And I thought the actress did a really good job of, if that was the intent, which I think it was, to be very Betty-like and... I'm glad that she is still very much a focus. Of course, the uh, the son, actually has two sons, but like the one younger son is very absent most of the time. And he's played by, I think, like at least two or three yeah. different actors now right. in the series. So right. the, he obviously isn't that critical. But right. Sally, I enjoy that she's still and even more so becoming a big part of the series. Yeah. And if she keeps taking pills from Pauline, she's going to be a real problem. I cannot remember what critic tweeted this, and so I am stealing their line, and I would give them credit if I can remember, but he or she said that he now determines that Mad Men is the story of how Sally Draper became a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up in this house, now taking the uh, pills, getting these dreams, and incredibly dark, but I thought very funny. Having a step-grandmother brandishing the knife from Psycho, (laughs) that knife looked like the Psycho knife. I mean, it did, that yeah. big. It just, that's or from Halloween or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people were having nightmares in this episode. Certainly Sally. Peggy was, of course, working late on Friday night and heard noises in the office, and she walked through the dark office until she found Dawn. So that was kind of a nightmarish type scene. And then Greg and Joan, I mean, that was a living nightmare. I mean, Joan's marriage to Greg is, I would call, a living nightmare. Um, And she finally put an end to that nightmare in a very definitive way. Of course, we have to see what happens in future episodes, whether Greg comes back. But my practical question is, and it's sort of a joke, but it's it's kind of a question, too. Is Greg going to get visitation rights to Roger's baby in a divorce proceeding? What's going to happen there? I had assumed that Greg was going to die in Vietnam, and I still yeah. think that yeah. could happen. Yeah. Joan was committed to making this happen. I mean, she was going to stay married to Greg even after, and I'm so glad they revisited that horrible scene where he raped her. And, and I'm so glad you see she's not forgiven, she's not forgotten, and I'm just really proud of her because she doesn't need him. 
She is more successful. She's smarter than he is. I mean, we saw that very clear when he had people over and everyone was more impressed with her than they were him. Right. And they were impressed with her accordion playing. And then, of course, we saw an accordion come out in that restaurant, too, which I thought yes. was kind of a flashback to that, that dinner party. <laughs> it's a very small scene, and but I wanted us to talk about the dynamics of the waiter is just, hey, come on, put your order in. You guys are a big party. You're probably going to stiff me my son was a waiter during college and has entertained us with many fun waiter stories. And all of a sudden, you know, Greg going, well, there's a lot of young men overseas that'd be happy to wait to give us our order and kind of threw a bucket of, you know, water on this guy's, uh, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. It was just a very weird discussion and the time that's there at that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a lot of tension at the table, obviously. You could see all that with Greg volunteering to go back to Vietnam so he could be a big deal, so he could supervise 20 doctors, whereas in New York, he was not a big deal. He was not going to be the chief resident at the hospital. He was not going to be a surgeon. His hands were not good enough, apparently. So, yeah, he went back to Vietnam voluntarily. And there was, so there was a lot of tension at the table. His parents were upset. Joan was upset. He took that out on the waiter. That was clear. And I guess Matt Weiner and the other writers were kind of riffing on people who take advantage of waiters and service people, people who are there to serve you. And I can tell you when I was hiring reporters way back in the day, one of the things I would do is after interviews, I would take them to lunch and see how they interacted with the waiters at restaurants. If they were polite to them, I thought that indicated that they would be easy to work with. If they weren't polite to the waiters, I thought, hmm, there's a problem. See, there's a nice hiring tip. I will tell you, <laughs> a lot of people ask how the applicant talks to the receptionist as well. Ah, okay. So there we go. See, this podcast does everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think, too, that little beat of the dialogue we were talking about encapsulates in a very short amount of time a overall cultural sense, too, of what things were like, not just in that restaurant, but in the country. And I think as the 60s began to roll into the 70s, that became even more so with people having certain attitudes about the war, the people that fought in the war, the people that did not fight in the war. And I think this was just a very quick nod and a very effective one that said this is an attitude that is beginning to form and that it will probably grow in the next few years in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that we've been talking for about a half hour and we haven't mentioned the main character of the series, Don Draper. We've been talking about the women mostly, and it's interesting because a lot of people feel that mad men, even though it's called mad men, should be called mad women because they feel that it's really the story of the women in the series that's most interesting. And I think maybe we've proven that by talking mostly about Betty and Megan and Sally and Andrea and, uh, and Peggy, and we haven't even mentioned Don's murderous nightmare. Right. Now, did you, did anyone think that this fever dream was not a dream, or did you know from the beginning that he was all in his head? I picked up on the fact that we had never seen Don that scared before. I'd never seen him that scared when Andrea got into his bed. I've mm. never seen him like that. So that to me, said, hmm, there's something wrong here. I've never seen this before. I've never seen John Hamm act like that before. Never moved to that emotion. So I had a feeling that 
this was in his head. But I wasn't sure. I'll admit I was not sure. And when he pushed her under the bed and then the next morning we see Megan come in in the light and it's very light and she's all happy. I was stunned for a little while. I thought, well, Mad Men doesn't usually play games like this. In other words, did Megan take the body away? And I thought of that for a second and, and it still might be true. But, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a dream. I guess the other thing that was a clue was that Megan was supposed to be home momentarily, and Don making out with Andrea and then sleeping with her and all, I figured if it were reality, Megan was going to walk in on them, and she didn't. So then I also thought, hmm, that's probably, he's just probably dreaming this. But I wasn't sure. For myself, I picked up that it was a dream, and the reason why is... Right when he got into bed, when he first got home, they had a musical cue that played. Mm-hmm. And it's one that they use, the one I remember that they've used before is when they had flashbacks to when he was younger and they were showing his life with his um, step-parents or mm-hmm. whoever had raised him at the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what season it was. It might have been the first or second season. And it's a musical cue that is used very sparingly. It's his... I want to say a theme, but it's his cue that you don't hear with anyone else. And mm-hmm. as he got into bed, I was like, either he's going to start flashbacking to something or something's going to occur. And when the time remained the same, like he didn't flashback to a younger time, but this woman entered the room, I knew that this was just some fantasy that his brain was creating. Now, interesting point, though, is that at the end, I still was like, wow, if this is happening and he did just kill someone, you still think that it could be an actual event that's occurring because a show that takes you to the line and you're wondering, are they going to really do this? If they do, you're like, wow, they did it. But you don't disbelieve it. It's not like a shark jumping moment. It's like, oh, my God, this is like a huge turning point, a touchstone, (laughs) as we said before, uh, that it could happen. And there's a point in the first season, I believe the first season, again, I get the seasons mixed up, but when he got a call from someone like his cousin or a brother that he had lost touch with, the scene was he went to his desk and he pulled something out of the desk that he was going to bring with him to meet this relative who knew who he was. He knew that he was Dick Whitman. And at the time, you're like, whoa, is he bringing a gun? Is he going to kill this guy to protect his identity? It turns out he was giving him some money. But again, that was one of those moments where you're like, we don't know this guy that well yet. Could he really be doing this? And it's one of those things where you think, well, if he does it, they've really done something big, but I buy it. And it's the same thing with this. It's like, I don't know if he really just killed her, but my God, it's like he was out of his mind. And if it is, wow, this show has just made a huge turn just leap yeah, yeah. huge turn and but yeah. it's believable yeah. yeah to fill in the blanks there brian it, it was dick whitman's i guess stepbrother adam whitman who contacted him he was working as a janitor in new york city and he was cleaning up an office and saw don's picture in ad age don had won right. an award and he gave adam five thousand dollars and told him to get lost and um then he, he ended up hanging himself yeah he? he hanged himself yeah Don felt upset about it, eventually called his boarding house and found he had hanged himself. Yeah. I thought it was a dream because it seemed out of the show's character, out of their theme. And also, I have had not dreams of murder, but I have had those crazy fever dreams where you're not resting comfortably and your mind is just racing. So I thought they did a good job of that. I was really glad to see the lady who played 
the mm-hmm. girl in the elevator. Andrea Rhodes. Yeah, Andrea right. is, was her name. Mm-hmm. I just love that actress. You know, she was in Twin Peaks, and she's just right. done tons of stuff. I loved the, oh, my bad penny, and she was, mm-hmm. and like, oh, here's my wife. And, so, <laughs> and I do think that Megan handled that pretty well. She was yes. upset, but not. Very well. I did want to, Don did not sound good. Nope. I'm uh, actually wondering if Don's coughing is more than just a flu slash cold. So am I. I don't know where that's going to happen and what it's going to see, but it was really, really interesting how bad he sounded. Yep. Yeah. Well, it would be ironic, ironic if he ended up having cancer and Betty, her scare was benign and his turns out to be bad. But we still have two more seasons to go, so I don't think they're going to give right. him a life threatening illness right now. <laughs> yeah, and they, and they, but they both smoked a lot. So, I mean, either one of them could have cancer. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. And I guess we, you know, we should end the call with uh, talking about the end credit music. Uh, Hit Me was the name of the song. And, of course, we, we saw Joan uneasy or at least uh, lying awake in her bed after Greg having left. Although, I'm not sure she was uneasy. That shot of her and her little son and her mother on the bed with the son and the mother asleep and Joan restless. I think uh, Joan just made a huge decision. So she is a little bit restless. But um, I don't think it's a decision that she regrets. Sure, she's not able to sleep, but um, I think she'll sleep just fine in coming episodes. And I really like how her mom... At least they did not show her, oh, I can't believe you're letting him go. You know, he's a doctor, da-da-da. Her mom seems very supportive of Joni, you know, of saying, Joan, you're my daughter, and I will tell you, you know, she's been very vocal about things she thinks she should do or not, but it appeared once Joan made the decision, she was right there, hey, you're my daughter, I've got your back. Yeah. Just in terms of the episode and the direction and whatnot, there's this tension and there was this uh, very suspenseful element to it because of the nature of these crimes that everyone was talking about and particularly the scene with Peggy working late. There's just a few shots of her walking tentatively down the hallway shot just as you would in in some sort of horror movie where it's tight on her face. You're expecting something to jump out and get her. She reaches for the doorknob. I mean, just all those things that were just done to a T to like really amp up the suspense. It was really well done. One thing I really, really enjoyed was some of the visual things that touched different aspects of the episode. You mentioned before the different characters under the bed. One thing I liked was the way that the woman, Andrea, was framed, the way they shot that with her one foot sticking out, the red shoe, going back to the big story of Michael, his pitch about the Cinderella and her being Mm -hmm. stalked and Mm -hmm. the one shoe that's behind. And then there we have this one shoe that's in the frame. And I just thought that was a brilliant shot. Right. right. We didn't even talk about that aspect of it, but no. again, no, we didn't. The- and I just real quick, and then we'll go. I do think that was hilarious because I have been in those meetings where you sell past the clothes, <laughs> you know, where it's like, "Shut up, they're happy. What are you right. doing?" <laughs> you know, and he's like, "Oh, we thought it was too dark. No, 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 it's great." And Don's looking at him like, "What are you doing?" 
Right. That was hilarious. And so really well done just tying all that together. And then I just think again, the overall theme of the sexuality and the depravity of the what the killer was seeking from the those nurses and then the, the mother in law talking about how them and their little skirts and they were stirring his desire and mm. Sally's listening like with wide eyes like, Whoa. Yeah. But I mean part of this is you cut to Dawn and like Dawn, I mean, that's his existence. He's always fighting this desire that's stirring with him. On the whole, I think it was uh, pretty well handled. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, thanks again for everyone for listening. You can find us again on iTunes to subscribe or on Facebook if you want to participate in some discussion. We also have a website that's madcast.net. If you want to give us any comments or ideas about the show or some of your favorite moments from the last episodes, send us a message. Until the next time, the bar is open. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.